The Vancouver School of Theology is located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. Uh, welcome, friends. It's good to be here uh, today with, with Todd and with uh, Jason Biasi uh, to uh, share with you all here on the Bruderholz. Um, today, we want to uh, talk with uh, Professor Biasi, Jason, about his work here at the Vancouver School of Theology. Uh, Jason has been a professor here at the school now for about uh, coming into the sixth year. Six uh, years. Sixth year. yeah. Yeah. Six years? I know. It's a lifetime. Yeah, and and uh, it hasn't felt like a lifetime. No, it's, been it's felt like ten minutes. <laughs> and uh, so Jason is professor. He's the uh, first one to hold the chair, the uh, Butler Chair in uh, Homiletics, which is preaching and biblical interpretation. He often says he has two words in the title of his job: homiletics and hermeneutics. Neither of which most people understand. Just means <laughs> preaching and biblical interpretation. Uh, Jason is a prolific writer. Um, he turns out things every day. I discover them online. He's and writing right print. now. Yes, he's just <laughs> writing as we're Compulsive. Uh, Jason is an, an editor at the Christian Century, a regular uh, writer for the Christian Century. His more uh, recent books are, he has a book on Christology, Surprised by Jesus Again. He's written a commentary on the Psalms, the last third of the Psalms in a Brazos series. Wonderful book, uh, great help to, to preachers and people who want to understand the Psalms. He, he has a couple of books in the hopper that he's worked with other people on. Uh, one is about the church in Cascadia and uh, another book uh, written, co-written with a student at VST on the church and technology, which is a really quite a timely piece. So we're glad for your, your time today, Jason, and we look forward to our discussion together. Are those books, the ones that are, you're working on now or finished, are, are any close to publication? Or? They're all in, uh, they're at various stages of being edited. So Okay, so um, soon. Yeah, we're in that frustrating stage where I don't really know when they're going to appear, mm -hmm. but I can't really hurry it up. The funny thing is that in a pandemic, everybody meets their deadlines because nobody can go anywhere or do anything. Mm. And so all these publishers are like, we're not used to authors actually turning in <laughs> manuscripts. Like we're slammed. So those of us who keep deadlines are annoyed that all these other people are acting like the us. deadline keepers can't do it, do it anymore. I know. So the yeah. technology book, I wish it were out yesterday, right? Like how pertinent it's so going to be timely, in a year. Right? We're going to have learned so much more anyway. So did you begin the book on technology before the COVID we did? Crisis? So, uh, Andrea Irwin, a, a fantastic recent graduate of our school. She and I were in a uh, seminar on, uh, technology and how to use it or not use it. And it was so frustrating to us. So we're DMing over Twitter saying, these people don't know what they're talking about. They're, bless them. They're not, they're not bad. They're just, you know, they're, they're, they're as if our grandparents were talking about, you know, <laughs> how do I make the phone work? And we were just basically trying to say, we can, we can do better than this. And one thing we got to get over is anxiety about it, right? I mean, you can live your whole life on your phone now. We can sit around and dither theologically on whether that's a good idea or not. But in the meantime, you have to get busy using it. Now, in between then and now, we had a pandemic. It's now everybody's using it, right? So the world changed. So we're using some of the same material, but also trying to ask, how do you have an embodied congregational life with a disembodied medium like technology? I'm afraid that I may be one of those grandparents that you're Indeed. speaking of. Um, <laughs> so, Jason, how long have you taught at VST, and why do you do it? Yeah, so uh, this is my sixth year, and um, I love coming to work here. Um, uh, so I'm from the U.S. South, as you can probably hear in my voice, and um, coming to Vancouver was leaving a place where you can ask a stranger where they go to church. That's a normal question, where I came from. Um, to now, uh, my neighbors, their response to church is something like, what's that, or why would you mess with it? And then you're often in the interesting position where you say, well, people get together and talk about things that matter and love one another and try and love the poor and try and be like Jesus. And it actually sounds like kind of a good idea. Um, so we have a little less trying to talk people back into a faith that they're sure is a bad idea or a Trojan horse for some political party. And being able to kind of start from scratch, it's, it's a beautiful surprise. So that's why I love living here. Teaching here, I have a lot of... So 
here's what I never have that I've had everywhere else I've taught. My father was a minister. Yeah, not His here. father <laughs> not was in a Vancouver. minister. Yeah. I'm going so that to is everywhere, everywhere else. Everywhere else I've taught, there's this kind of lineage. And that's a Christendom relic, right? I mean, it's the same reason people go into being a pharmacist or a politician or whatever. Here it tends to be, I had some weird dream about Jesus that I don't understand, and I want to share it with my friends, and I don't know how, and uh, I'm up for whatever. <laughs> so it's just a very different posture to how to lead in church. So that's why I like to teach her. What, what, Plus you keep, you know, the, the checks don't bounce, and that's nice, and you keep me employed, which I appreciate. But it's like VST, my connection with VST here, I, you know, living and working um, in a in a city in an area that is it is decidedly post-christian there there are things that are exciting about that right in Absolutely. terms of because you can the things that you can do in this kind of cultural setting that you couldn't do right. where, where you were right including how you teach homiletics and hermeneutics and how is it actually different how you teach yeah that's a really good question so um uh, there's less sort of preconceived stuff that has to be kind of dis- deconstructed mm-hmm. in, in terms of churchy stuff. Um, often, I, I just notice students haven't had a lot of good experience with what good preaching looks like. So I get to kind of start with, um, hey, let's listen to this preacher or that preacher. Now, the other weird thing is because of technology, they've often found on the internet people way outside the normal field of what we would consider appropriate people to learn from. I mean, they've, they've kind of, uh, they've escaped our supervision. And, right. uh, you know, so I would never have introduced them to, um, well, gosh, one funny thing. So there's a megachurch preacher I'm not a great fan of named Stephen Furtick back in Charlotte. So my kind of church in North Carolina was sort of dealing with, why is this guy's church growing? He's a fundamentalist, blah, blah, blah. Well, some of my students have found Furtick online, and they're like, do you know this guy? And He's so great. I know. And, uh, and they you, know. you remind me of this guy. <laughs> uh, God, kill me. So, um, but it, it, it's just a strange way in which technology allows you to learn from all quarters, and you got to figure out, how do I learn from somebody whose church I would never go to uh, and who I do not admire in certain ways, and yet... God, the Holy Spirit seems not to be above using them for certain things. Um, so there's, there's less of a authoritative structure authorizing appropriate streams of learning material. And, um, uh, and that's probably true everywhere just because of what technology has done to us. I, I was like having been a student at Regent College and, and loving what VST is doing and taking classes here. Um, and knowing, you know, as someone who worked as a pastor, uh, there's something that I carry. So I'm thinking more as a student, obviously. And and I'm thinking, if if I lived in the American South, it would, and I have never. But there's sometimes where the setting around you when everybody or most people think in a certain way, mm-hmm. it can be harder to see the truth of that thing. Hmm. Like here, I'm like, oh no, my faith makes sense here. Uh, that means something. And so the learning then, that, that aspect of learning in that setting uh, has a value to it that, that you can't necessarily pick up in those other contexts. It's not one is yeah. good or bad. It's just like, yeah. no, that like pursuing that learning aspect of my faith here in this place yeah. and what a gift it is for VST to be planted like here where it is, let alone it's a beautiful place and whatever I mean, else. Richard and I are both products in various ways of what you might call theological post-liberalism. So uh, Richard working at University of Toronto with John Webster and me working at Duke with uh, Stanley Hauerwas and others. And um, they both learned from Hans Frey and George Lindbeck at Yale. And one of the things uh, I think we're committed to is being ridiculously local, like mm-hmm. hyper-local, that the local matters. And this is a reflection of a God who takes flesh uh, right underneath the ribs of a specific unmarried Jewish teenager from the sticks. Um, So noticing the local is kind of everything to me. When I've worked at Christian Century, here's what I love doing. I love going to a new place and saying, okay, what's the church look like in this ecology? Because it's going to be distinctive. Now, you can learn in other ecologies and their own distinctiveness from a, a separate place but you can't simply take this thing and deposit it in a new place and expect it to work. Um, 
So I always think the more granular, the more specific, the more detailed you get, the more interesting things you notice. Um, and this is a fascinating place. I mean, uh, crushingly expensive, mm. um, uh, <laughs> really, really lonely. Um, and yet you see, you know, I notice on Saturday and Sunday, these little running clubs with, you know, people, uh, tricked out in more expensive clothing than anyone should have on just to <laughs> jog. Um, but what they're really after is friendship. They want to sweat together. They want to get to know each other. They want to suffer a little, not too much. Um, I mean, I see a faint glimpse of discipleship mm -hmm. there. Um, I think you see it in, you know, the people wandering up into the mountains and picking mushrooms and flying down mountains on various dangerous devices. I mean, again, I think there's a kind of hunger for a life that has a little um, trepidation in it and where you could actually get mm -hmm. eaten by a bear or eat the wrong mushroom. Um, so, uh, so some of the taste for adventure in this part of the world um, I think is after something that God uh, invites us to in Jesus Christ uh, to bear a cross um, and to do so with friends, uh, friends we wouldn't have chosen. Um, anyway, some of the reflections of church are a little dim, <laughs> but I mm. see a lot of them. Um, Jason, when you came here, it's interesting because some of our friends talked about how, um, you know, coming out here to Vancouver, that the rest of the church, well, there's locality, there are others in the church, leaders in the church are watching us because, yeah. you know, Vancouver is a kind of place for the church, which is the canary in the mine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the West Coast, if you're a, a settler, a kind of European-descended person, um, you left something to get out here. So, um, and usually you left multiple times, right? So uh, you started on the East Coast, and then you moved a little West, and you moved a little West, and you moved a little West, and either you were in trouble or somebody got divorced or um, you saw some opportunity. I mean, the first people came to Vancouver were getting, first white people, were cutting down trees and pulling fish out of rivers and pulling gold out of mines. Um, it's one of the unusual parts of North America that nobody came to for religious reasons. Um, so, uh, I mean, as lots of scholars have said, this place is maybe a place where there never was Christendom. At the same time, by the time churches wandered out here, it was often very conservative, culturally conservative forms of church. And so I'm often surprised here, lots of mainline churches aren't working very well, but they're still trapped by mm -hmm. 1950s forms of church. Like, if we just keep white-knuckling this thing, it might turn around, you know. Hmm, that's um, interesting. So I, I and, and, and a parallel would be the Roman Catholic Archdiocese, which... Um, I'm often told, has a really conservative cultural mindset. I'm not talking about theology, just in terms of how things get done and leadership and so on. And if you ask Catholic friends, they'll say, well, you can understand that by looking at a bishop we had in the 50s. And then one of them will say, no, 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 it's a bishop we had in the 1890s. You know, it's yeah. just like, um, so like basically as long as there have been Europeans, it had been like, here's how we will do things. There will be no experimentation. And one of the great freedoms of living in a place like this is, well, we got no obvious future, so we may as well try some new stuff yeah. and go down swinging, as it were. Um, There's an interesting question in terms of um, the mentioning how local things are and, and being planted in a place, but you're also talking about the technological need right now. Right. And that is an interesting question. There'll be, there'll be students and others who are signing up for courses at VST for the first time who don't come to Vancouver. Now, or you know, what might be great is that if they come once or twice or, or whatever it is, right? That and to get that that local feel. But what are the challenges there in that now? Not just theological education, but education in general. We're not necessarily getting as much of the local stuff as yeah. Maybe that's we a really really good question. I mean, one thing VST has been committed to is a kind of space and place model where we invite. Well, we really mandate that everybody turn up like once a semester. Show up. And uh, what I find as a teacher is once I've met somebody face-to-face, -face, learning with them online is uh, a lot easier than if I've never met them face-to-face, -face, even a short visit. That's right. Um, so the problem is now nobody's turning up face-to-face. -face. <laughs> so uh, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you do that? And um, I think we're well-positioned for that because we're accustomed to doing technology and, and teaching at a distance. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's loss there. It's no good pretending there's not loss there when you can't go out for a drink afterwards or when you yeah. can't uh, meet in your, in, in your office to go over something difficult, right? So, um, I mean, but there's gains, right? I mean, St. Ignatius talks about how there are consolations in the midst of desolations. 
And one of the consolations, I mean, I did, uh, I did lectures yesterday for church communities in Manitoba and in Southern Alberta. Like I wouldn't have flown to those places and the environment doesn't want you to fly all these places. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, I think we all know something's changing and we're not going to go back quite, Mm -hmm. um, but it's not altogether good. It's not altogether bad. And how many years is it going to take before we can tell which is which? Right? There's such a hunger for, like I was running a home group or something a few nights ago, and these are people that are local, yeah, right? But some, I was thinking of one couple that was in the group, and, and last time I saw them was August or something. We're end of October now. And I was looking at them on the screen, feeling connected, but remembering the last time I saw them when they walked into my backyard and it's like, Oh, Barry and Heather. And so I think there's like a longing. Absolutely. That's good to feel. That's just like, this is what we're doing now. But even if we can meet for an hour down the road, Mm -hmm. I mean, Christianity is largely about the shaping of our desires. Mm -hmm. So to feel the absence of someone you love who makes your life possible Mm -hmm. and to say, I really wish we could be together in person and share a little bread and uh, Mm -hmm. drink a little wine Mm -hmm. and talk about Jesus. Um, I mean, so longing for embodied church, that's a, Mm -hmm. that's not a bad place to be. It's like it's been Advent since March. Oh gosh. Looking (laughs) forward to a world that's on its way that isn't here yet. You're going to write it. That's a good book title, the long (laughs) Advent. uh, You have me thinking about the Narnia books with where it's always winter and never Christmas, right? Uh, Feels a little like that. Mm. Uh, Jason, just m- moving to, to what you teach mm. here. Um, so you, you teach biblical interpretation and preaching. And uh, uh, it may be obvious to some people why that matters. Uh, to others, maybe less obvious. Mm. Tell us a little bit about uh, teaching those things and why they matter for the life of the church and the life of the world. Yeah, so um, the church spends an enormous amount of time and energy on the spoken word. We never really get together as Protestants where somebody doesn't stand up and say some stuff from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's it's easy to forget how important that is. Like, when it's good, it's just almost magic. I mean, those words create a world, yeah. right? And uh, a world big enough you can move into and live your life in and then create further. Yeah. Um, I think we're more aware of how powerful that is when it's done with harm mm-hmm. and it does damage, right? Um, so it's an incredible privilege that we get to stand in front of other human beings and talk about things that matter for a living, right? Um, and so I get to ask, well, how do we have those words be life-giving, other-honoring? Um, how do we talk about Jesus uh, in ways that, like Jesus does, confound listeners, but always for their good and blessing, right? How do we speak of um, a faith that makes no sense unless a specific Jewish man was raised from the dead, and is calling all the wrong people into friendship with each other and himself Mm -hmm. um, to wait for a kingdom that he promises and is coming soon. Mm -hmm. I I just think it's bizarre. So one of the things I teach is to always lean into the weird. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of mainline Christianity has spent a couple generations trying to duck the weird, Mm -hmm. trying to jump over it or be embarrassed by it or change the subject. Mm -hmm. And our faith is inarguably weird. It's unimaginably weird. Mm -hmm. And why run from that? I mean, Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Narnia, like, they've all said, uh, here's a really weird world. And um, uh, and people have lapped that up by the billions. Mm. And still in mainline Protestantism, we're like, let's make this understandable. Like, mm. let's boil this thing down to something really any breathing human already thinks. Mm. And then tell them, you're already Christian. You just didn't realize it. Mm. Now, especially here in Vancouver, they're like, no, I'm not. Thank you very much, right? Mm-hmm. It's like an insult, not a compliment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I do think there's a kind of moment where we get to kind of re-mythologize Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Um, why do we ever think this, it was a good idea for this to make sense according to my cramped rationality at present? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's make a different kind of sense. Mm-hmm. As, as someone who's uh, read some of what you've written, taken courses from you, took a course from both of you, t- mm-hmm. sharing the mm-hmm. teaching of a course... I want to kind of say, Jason, you saying this is, is one thing, but I think, and I don't think this is me alone, I, other students and people who are here, that's one of the gifts of this place is that oftentimes you're connecting with students who may have had some kind of church upbringing, and had, yeah. but those very words have been used in ways that have tamed the faith or put these bounds mm-hmm. that people are not even sure anymore. 
and yet maybe they feel a sense of they might call it call or something that and so I've multiple occasions here whether it's in a BART reading group or in a course or in something I'm reading or just actually mostly in conversation with people like yourselves uh, what you're talking about that creating of a world Mm -hmm. gives a freedom Mm -hmm. to people to say oh it's like a, a I can I can hold this, but it's going to compel me to something more. Some of the things that I feared about how I was understanding my faith mm-hmm. or, or something, they're, they're falling away, and yet uh, there's a kind of an orthodoxy that allows me to, to continue with this. It's, it's, it's not just you. I think it's one of the reasons you fit well here, right. um, but it is kind of this place as well and, and done well. Done really, really well. Anyways, it's part so of why I came was to be part of building a culture that tries to think of theological education differently. And uh, I don't think you can ask any human, any individual to do that on their own. But together with a handful of people, you can go on an adventure of trying to change a culture. Yeah, and when it's informed, right? We know the difference of being right. clever. When someone's just going, well, you know, you're going to hear so-and-so say that. Well, mm-hmm. I think this. And you're like, that's just insane. That's not just, that's not yeah. weird. It's just doesn't make any sense. No, that's right. And this, there's, there's a different thing here where there's right away you can see the credibility mm-hmm. that that is here. Well, yeah, we'll so. show you our footnotes. I mean, I think, exactly. I think we got here. Um, I mean, I mentioned post-liberal interpretation. Carl yeah. uh, Barts had a huge hand mm-hmm. in that. Um, Rowan Williams is somebody who mm-hmm. took Bart and then deepened it with mm-hmm. uh, Orthodox thought and uh, Anglican practice and leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah Coakley is someone who's done the same. Um I mean, it's supposed to be good news, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And we're really good at turning good news into, like, terrible news. Yes. Um, but what if it's really good news? Yeah. I mean, uh, what if God is actually for creatures and creation and humanity enough to become a creature um, and redeem every last particle of it? Mm-hmm. That's good news, right? Yeah. I want to be part of that. I loved your phrase about con- confounding people mm. um, in preaching. Um, w- one of my experiences, and I'd like to, you to reflect on this, is y- y- I teach first-year theology here, so I get a lot of people coming into a first-year theology course who expect that theological vocabulary it can only and always be used in ways that oppress people. Mm. And so <laughs> one of the things I'm doing is sort of rehabilitating the alphabet, mm. um, saying, no, 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 these letters work. You can speak this language. It can be healing. Do yes. you find some of that yeah. kind of experience in your work? Yeah, and I think that's really magical. Um, to, uh, I mean, one of the ways I think we think about doctrine is um, that it's, it, it's a little bit like Wittgenstein's language games, right? So um, it's really not a cudgel to hit somebody with. It's so often been used for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually teaching language. It's actually rules for language. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you like, you can draw the boundaries that a sport will be played within. Here are the rules. Mm-hmm. Here are the boundaries. Then there are an infinite number, literally infinite number of possible outcomes. Yes. Right? The boundaries don't actually make it cramped. They actually make the game possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it can be played beautifully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I do think it's fun to teach doctrine understood that way. Mm-hmm. The language thing is also helpful because language is never static. It's always a yes. living thing. Um, I mean, people who study this say that a language is dead, not when no one speaks it, but when it no longer changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, so if you care to learn the language, become a master practitioner of the language mm-hmm. and then move it, yes. nudge it, use it differently, more yes. beautifully than it's mm-hmm. been used. Um, but of course no one wants to learn a language if... Like, they really think it's bad, and they don't want it spoken. Mm-hmm. Like, why would, why would you do that? Then you just bulldoze it at that point. Mm-hmm. But no, learn the language and then speak it better than we've been able to so far. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Do you, fi- you find that with biblical interpretation, too? There's a, maybe a delight in text, but also, at times, a fear of text because they've yeah. been used mm-hmm. against people. There's a deep anxiety mm-hmm. there, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what we've often done, especially in liberal mainline uh, settings informed by the modern university, is we've sort of said, okay, if you apply the right historical critical techniques to this, you will not be a fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. That's been the goal. Um, And you kind of want to say, okay, here's the way not to be a fundamentalist. You ready for it? Mm -hmm. Don't be a fundamentalist. (laughs) (laughs) It's that easy. There's no technique that will get you there, Mm -hmm. right? Um, it's actually a matter of becoming the kind of human being who loves God and neighbor. Mm-hmm. That's how you be not a fundamentalist. You can be a fundamentalist historical critic. You can be a fundamentalist liberal. You can be a fundamentalist of any kind. It just means you're an ideologue. You don't listen and you're not interested in loving people, right? Um, yeah. 
So, uh, and, and I, and, you know, for me, treating the theology as a language has been the way out of a certain moribund cul-de-sac. Um, it's not the only way out. There'd be other ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. I, I find that uh, for, for some people, when they study doctrine or biblical interpretation, they're worried that, you know, they're going to... Some are interested in it, or some are worried about it, that they're going to discover a method that will always yield a certain outcome, rather than this notion that you're you're talking about a language game or rules for engagement, uh, which don't necessarily yield a single uh, outcome, but mean that we're able to have this conversation you're speaking about. That's right. I think a lot... So Stanley Haros um, will often point this out, that we tend to think... If, if we're confused by a passage or by a, a kind of theological thing, what you want to do is find some expert, right? Mm-hmm. And universities give offices to experts like us to do that. And so we're complicit in, in keeping that fiction running. Um, what you probably actually want to find is a saint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you want to spend time with that saint. You want to do what they do, act like them, mm-hmm. and then ask, all right, how do we understand this passage? Now, at that point, sometimes expertise is helpful because mm-hmm. there are people who know languages that, Ordinary civilians don't know, who know about manuscript tradition, who know about the history. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then you and I have a kind of role in that. But it's a small role compared to um, God raising up people whom the rest of us really long to be like. Mm -hmm. So another thing you see in our culture is, I mean, and I mentioned those movies before, this kind of hunger for someone older, Mm -hmm. who's kind, takes an interest in you, who trains you up to a different kind of human Mm -hmm. Uh, that's just a human thing we all long for. And in the church, we think that's discipleship. There's there's something in the educational endeavor about that too, right? Like I'm picturing yeah. what would students hear, uh, whether they're local or, or online, say, uh, I love being a student there because, right? The, yeah. And some of it would point towards that. What about you as a, I'm going to use the word teacher, more than professor now. As a teacher, what do you love about teaching? Yeah, um, uh, I'll give you a weird example. So um, we're online the other day, and someone, one of the students chats with me and says, look, I'm really feeling sick. i, I got to kind of be ready to run to the bathroom. So I'm, I'm going to turn my camera off. I want to participate, but I don't want anybody to see me, like, diving for the toilet, right? Um, so, uh, you know. Zoom video off. Exactly. We all know the language. So, now. Yeah, better be yeah. off, yeah. especially if you think it's off. Anyway. <laughs> Mute the uh, mic. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so I say, okay, don't worry about that at all. It's fine. I'll pray for you. I'm sort of amazed she wants to be in the class, given how she feels, but bless her, right? Um, I, I might be puking, but I'm also that's listening. That's right. I'm also <laughs> listening. So, um, and I come out in the hallway, and there's this beautiful transfiguration icon that we have in our hallway. And in Orthodox images of the transfiguration, the disciples are falling down the mountain. And I look closely, and one of them is covering his mouth upside down. Mm-hmm. So I snap a picture of it, and I send it to her, and I say, you're not the only one who feels terrible. (laughs) And she writes back, this is why I love your classes. So there's a weird way, I think, that um, because Christian discipleship is our whole lives, the university is not making a claim on our whole lives. It's it's making a set of academic demands appropriately. Um, And yet we can kind of smudge those lines as people who are trying to love God. and I think, I don't know, I find in the people who taught me well, um, I was interested in other parts of their lives and how they conducted them. Not because I wanted to catch them out in some right. gotcha hypocrisy, mm-hmm. but rather I was trying to figure out how to live my own life, mm-hmm. right? So I wanted to see how they parented their kids and what they did when someone yelled at them in the parking lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so there's a, a way in which we get moments like that. And I think that's more common here. I've taught in a lot of places right. where it's not common, where students really are more of a number, and uh, the idea of knowing your professors um, uh, in anything other than a kind of they're at the microphone and they grade my papers is is a mistake. I've Here it's not a mistake. I think it's kind of central. I've seen that tension in, in theological schools. Um, uh, when I was going to seminary, and, and there, there would sometimes be on the other side of that, the confusion that like a professor is supposed to be a pastor now. Or a pal. Or a pal. Or, yeah. a, you know, like, you know, you're not just for academic advice, but, like, for counseling, right? That's I'm, right. I'm really going through it. So I don't know that that's only in, in, in religious, like, theological education. I would think yeah. some of that encroaches into the academy and other Absolutely. places as well. Because we're all human beings. Yeah. Right. That there's in the, just a cultural kind of thing. That, right. But, um, yeah, you do see that, that 
you can't kind of describe it necessarily, but you know it when you're living at that balance of like, mm-hmm. oh, that's a human being who's teaching me. Yeah. Um, but Jennings, I'm also yeah. learning something, yeah. right? That Willie Jennings you. used to say this really beautifully, that uh, the seminary is not your church. And if you try and make it your church, you'll do harm to yourself and to others, right? So we serve the church. We're, we're a church uh, servant, but we're not the real thing. So there are things that it's a mistake to come to school for uh, when really those are primary things that, that the local church has to do. Jason, do you find the, the category of friendship sort yeah, of helps? I do. Because there's all these boundaries we try to draw by, mm-hmm. you know, pastor, mentor, uh, professor. But do you find the, the category of friendship, I mean, it's a... Christian term, a beloved term, yeah. is sort of helpful in the context of I, teaching theology. I really do. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad's a psychologist, and so I grew up with language of boundaries, right? Um, and those are appropriate in a kind of uh, professional client kind of relationship. But then the church got kind of drunk with that language and said, well, we're really a professional as a pastor, and our clients need to know that there are boundaries there and so on. And I just think it was really deadly for the life of the church. Um None other than Jesus says, I have called you friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. So presumably if the God of the universe uh, can become incarnate and wash feet, then uh, who are we to say we're like above being friends? Now, I, I think the danger is what you named, Todd, is a kind of patronizing or a kind of failure to recognize the power I- dynamic in those mm-hmm. relationships. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I think it's a certain kind of friendship, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um where I hopefully we talk about the power imbalance and recognize it and recognize why it's there for good and why there are rules that shouldn't be violated in that and so on. But um, I notice my worst teaching moments are ones where I kind of wrap my own soul in cellophane and kind of say I, I'm uh, kind of above whatever is happening at the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's not an incarnational way to teach. Yeah, Lillian Daniels talks about friendship, and she says, you know, there's there's more kinds of friendship than, uh, oh, we tell each other everything yeah. kinds of friendships, <laughs> you, you know. And so, so you can be friends. It, there's You modulate that friendship. That's right. Yeah. It's a species of friendship, yeah. yeah. Um, I like that. That's good. I noticed the folks I, who, who age in ways that I admire continue mm-hmm. to grow friendships, especially with folks who are younger, because that's, uh, as you age, that's, the most kind of people available, right? right? Um, so there's a way, and, and, and the friendships that delight me in church are when they're 80-year-olds who are friends with my teenagers. Yeah. And it's clear that they're not just playing a role, like mm-hmm. that my kid matters in their life, mm-hmm. and they're curious about things in their lives, and their life is affected by somebody 65 years younger. Um, I think that's integral to what it means to be a human being. So, uh, yeah, there is as wide a variety of possible friendships probably as, uh, as there are human beings. Mm-hmm. Do you... Go ahead. I wanted to pick up a, a piece. So you talked about ways of teaching the Bible at uh, a theological school, preparing people for Christian ministry who will preach and interpret the Bible in the context of the community. And uh, th- this is my paraphrase. You're saying that that kind of formation is more than teaching people technical skills. Right. Um, to interpret the Bible, you also need to be taught, it seems, uh, to be a certain kind of person. Yes, so right. so what, what sort of... Um, what sort of disciplines do you teach your students alongside disciplines that right. are about scholarship yes. uh, in a form, more formal sense? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, in a way, it's simple. When we read this book, we dare to believe God's speaking to us. Um, and I want students to sit with that before we launch into the dozens of qualifications and footnotes and parenthetical. But on the other hand, you know... Um, that God has actually deigned to speak through um, first uh, God's own incarnate child, um, and then this collection of books that's really a library written over hundreds of years by people we wouldn't likely have chosen to spend time with, um, and then through our words. Uh, so if we're not in awe of that, we probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, and then uh, I do try to have students emerge from class as something other than a sermon critic. So I've noticed this, <laughs> that a lot of holders of theological degrees have become really good at saying why everyone else is doing it wrong, oh, yeah. and sort of standing in the back, sort of arms unhappily folded over chest and saying, well, that was really bad exegesis, you know, mm-hmm. like, okay, cool, go up there and do better. Mm-hmm. Now that's interesting and difficult, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it's not just carping from the sidelines. So I, I want students to be something other than overly indebted sermon critics. It's not very interesting. It's not worth time or money, right? Um, 
What I want them instead to do is to stand up there and say something beautiful, life-giving, challenging to themselves that calls themselves to repentance and new life uh, as much as anyone else. Um, uh, And then there's another kind of, uh, I think, canard that I try to get past, which is the view of preaching as speaking truth to power. Um, There's good in it, and it's helpful, but like every analogy, it limps. Mm -hmm. So uh, the analogy presumes I, the speaker, have all the truth, and... um, the people I'm railing against have all the power, mm-hmm. but postmodernism's already showed that right. power is slipperier than that. Like, mm-hmm. um, uh, it's usually not a kind of hundred percent, zero percent kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all being negotiated all the time. Um, and, uh, maybe instead of that, it's something more like, um, the God of all power mm-hmm. has become powerless mm-hmm. and we're trying to do likewise. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's a, a word it doesn't make you feel as good about your own righteousness and somebody else's wickedness, mm-hmm. but it has the virtue of being true. Yeah. Do you think sometimes speaking truth to power or prophetic preaching right. is um, used as permission to be mean? It is. It yeah. can be. I mean, yeah. everything can be used as pers- yeah. permission yeah. to be mean. But it, mm-hmm. I mean, I take this from Chuck Campbell and Ellen Davis, who both say, you know, the mm-hmm. prophets are first lovers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they love Israel. They love the people. They love the land. They love the God of Israel. They love the stories. And they're in agony precisely because those things have all been forgotten or desecrated. So to be a good prophet, you first have to be a lover. And we see that. Uh, William Barber, the head of the North Carolina NAACP, where I'm from, uh, I mean, I think he's railing against injustice in our political system because he loves justice and has a vision of the beloved community, right? And if you don't have that, being prophetic just means you're whining. The, the, you mentioning God speaking, and here you are teaching... And yet teaching with this foundation of, I, th- I think that God is speaking through his incarnate son, through the word, through words spoken now. Mm-hmm. I'm picturing you in the classroom, so on Zoom, or I'm still picturing the old school, like at the front of a room. Mm-hmm. There must be times where you feel caught up, mm. where you're saying something, and then I don't know that it's, you know, most of the time you're probably not going to mention it. I think it actually happens for preachers as well. That right. If you're, and we're all have been preachers here, that you're preaching, you're going through a text and a sermon or whatever, but then all of a sudden you realize, oh, something's actually happening here. <laughs> um, and yet you don't really have the permission at that moment to, to say it. You're just yeah. trusting that it's true. <laughs> I was just pretending before, but now this is No, real. but I mean, yeah. and, and you, can't, you can't chase those moments, right? You no, can't manufacture yeah. them. But what a gift yeah. to you're teaching here in a classroom and then you're saying something that you feel is from God, but then it's in that moment of exchange yeah. that you see, so, I, think, I think they're getting it. But it's not just the educational exchange, it's no. some spirit at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain whimsy of the Holy Spirit about when that happens, right? Um, We have things in the church where we think it's not up to the whimsy of the Holy Spirit. Like, the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. doesn't get to be whimsical about, I don't think I'm going to show up in the Lord's Supper today. Like, I got other things to do. (laughs) No, God has promised, and so God has to be present in the bread and wine, if you like. Uh, God has promised to be present in baptism, whether God feels like it or not. God's not flighty the way we are. But it does seem to be Hmm. more whimsical, in, in my experience, in teaching and preaching, um, when, as they say in the black church, I believe we're going to have church today. Like, mm-hmm. And um, you would wish you could make that automatic or count on it, and sometimes you can't. The other thing, though, is it's tricky. Every preacher knows this experience where you feel like this is not working, right. and let's just get through the rest of the sermon yeah. as quickly as possible yeah. <laughs> and get out of here and hope next week is better. And then, you know, it'll have been life-changing and revolutionary for some listener, right? Like... Uh, uh, but I think there are times um, when you're aware of it working, mm-hmm. and they're eating what you're cooking, and um, uh, you it's know, incredible. it's incredible. I mean, it's really it's why we do it, right? Um, but then, as everyone who's ever prayed a prayer knows, um, those kind of moments of feeling close to God mm-hmm. become rarer the longer you do it. Yeah, um, and people who are good at praying uh, will say uh, God withholds that kind of yeah. consolation so that. You're really longing for God and not for the religious right. feeling, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I assume there's something similar with preaching um, uh, that it, that that sense of uh, delight can be can become fleeting, um, and precisely then you have to lean in more. Like I wasn't doing this for the feeling anyway; um, I was doing it for yes. Jesus. And, uh, and surprise, um, God shows up in our weakness. Yeah, that's where right. have we heard that before? No, that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It, it is amazing. I mean, clearly Paul's uh, antagonists are saying, yeah, he can't really preach. <laughs> I, I love that, right? 
And then he managed just to say, yeah, I totally can't preach. And that's why uh, any of y'all coming to faith through me is just through the yeah. Holy Spirit. <laughs> like, it's the right way to respond to criticism. I've just never managed to find the goodness. <laughs> I always say, no, I can preach. You're wrong. Uh, yeah. But we're not saying that about teaching. <laughs> no, hopefully not. Well, we can't really. No. Yeah, the right answer is all. <laughs> it, 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 it was Jesus. <laughs> Um, Jason, uh, go, going back to the classroom, I'm really interested in, in how you teach preaching. I think others would find that uh, engaging. So how do you frame um, a lecture on preaching? Yeah. You know, which you, you want to be attentive to technique. You yeah. want to talk about God's agency in the midst of it. You're aware that we're, we're taught by God about God. So so much hangs on the gift of God's presence. Right. Um, so how would you f- frame the cl- classroom experience to yeah. kind of tune people into that mm-hmm. kind of I thing? I use a lot of moments from the memory of the church, from our ancestors' teachings, mm-hmm. where they're stumbling mm-hmm. over the same set of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have these moments where, you know, my guy St. Augustine will get a letter from a priest to be like, yeah, when I preach, nothing happens, and they don't like it, and I don't like it. I'm like, what do we do? <laughs> I just love it because it's so, like, ordinary and normal <laughs> and us. Mm-hmm. And Augustine has this great thing where he says, uh, well, I could tell you about technique and rhetoric because I got books on that, but I'm not going to do that. Here's what I'm going to say. They'll notice what delights you. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean they'll be delighted by what delights you. It means they'll notice it. So I had a preacher for a long time I sat under who got really excited when he started talking about fri- flying his private plane. Mm-hmm. And then he'd be like, all right, well, I guess we should talk about the Bible a little bit or something. <laughs> like, dude, it's time for another line of work, right? So the trick is people who speak for and about God mm-hmm. is to be delighted by the right thing. Mm-hmm. Jesus and all the strange friends that Jesus is drawing mm-hmm. to God. Um, in terms of technique, I, there's really little substitute for getting them up and talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the sermons I preached in seminary class really vividly. I could probably preach to all three of them right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting them talking to each other and trying it out in kind of safety before they're unleashed on like innocent civilians is, <laughs> I think, really important. <laughs> the thing is, seminary students are not great for this because we're so nice to each other because we, and we're also uh, going to have to yeah, go, yeah. right? So and Canadians particularly. Yeah. Can- nice. Oh gosh, yeah. yeah. And uh, God bless you for it, but man, it can be <laughs> bad in the classroom. I know. So I keep trying I to say to them, stop being polite, like be more, cri-. and, but she, there's limits to that because they love each other and they're trying to encourage each other and whatever. So one thing I do try to do is I try to notice, I take this from a painter I knew who the way he would teach painting is a, uh, he wouldn't criticize. He would say, he would find the smallest thing in a new student's painting that, that he liked. And he would say, if it could be postage stamp size. And he would say, that's really good. Do more like that. <laughs> so I do try and find the gifts that God has given us and to say, that's amazing. Like, lean into that. Accentuate that. Uh, God gave you that to bless God's people with. Mm, wonderful. Thank you. You have the, um, so speaking of delight. Yeah. Of course, all of us have been students and continue to be students. And I think we, those of us who've been students for any period of time, notice that, right? That that professor, that instructor, teacher, they're they're delighted. And and if not, it's it's difficult. What about on the other side of that for a student? And mm-hmm. you're talking about learning preaching. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody, you know, the technocratic end of it, where somebody becomes a a great preacher in terms of, you know, mechanics and even even looking at the text and whatever else. Mm-hmm. But there must be times like in that example where they don't really have anything to say mm-hmm. because there's... so For a student, the difference then between being a student and learning, mm-hmm. Do you can you spot mm-hmm. that in students? That And is that delight as well? Yeah. Because I, I wouldn't imagine that getting good grades is something that can be really that delightful, and not, not in that way that we're talking about it, right. but learning can. Yes. Right? Yeah, no, I think we all know, uh, and maybe we've been, the student who um, gets really good grades but didn't actually work that hard or learn that much. And the student whose grades might not have been as good but actually moved really far from A to B. That's the real prize, right? Um, (laughs) One of my teachers, Will Willimon, likes to say, you know, in the classroom you can criticize somebody's sacramental theology and they'll, you know, blink at you. You could give the mildest criticism of the sermon they've just given, and they'll run screaming and crying from the room, right? Um, And and part of that is because um, we got here because we did things in church, and people encouraged us. And they said, you're really good at that. So often it's the case 
that that's the first criticism we're getting in a, in a part of ourselves that's, that's used to point. being praised, right? And yeah. we actually have to develop some calluses around that because the criticism's going to come pretty fast yeah. and furious, right? That's just what leadership means. I mean, that's all Jesus' stuff about bearing a cross. But it is, I think it's painful to have it move from a place of affirmation only to a place of criticism. Um, and I think some of the answer is that criticism is the wrong image, right? It's uh, more a matter of saying something like, um, you're doing this. It's more a matter of holding up a mirror, right? Mm -hmm. okay. So painful to watch ourselves preach. Um, but it's saying, here's what I see you doing, right? Um, can you take this gesture that's good and do it in this way or at this time? Right. So it's a little less, mm -hmm. stop, this is bad, and a little more, yes. this good thing you're doing is for this other purpose, if you can lean into more of that. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of it, too, is, is just exposing them to preachers unlike those that they might have heard before. Right. And um, I had a student uh, <laughs> at a student in class uh, who's a trans man who uh, is maybe the most liberal student I'm teaching this semester. And I showed him Tim Keller. Um, and uh, in the blog after class, he was like, man, I like this Keller guy. He's really good. It's like he, revolutionary. He's a good actually. preacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just had to ask him, do you know who you're talking about? Like, do you, I mean, you know, pastor of a really conservative church and a really conservative denomination. I mean, Within his denomination, he's considered a dangerous right. liberal. And if he hadn't grown a 5,000-member church in Manhattan, mm -hmm. you know, the long knives would be out and so on. So, like, um, and not only did he not know that, he didn't care because mm -hmm. he heard something true in what Keller was preaching that he wanted to imitate in his own ministry. I mean, that's those moments are That's amazing. a great example. Do, do you find that that's more generally true with students? In other words, that there, there was a time, I think, where... You know, there, there was kind of oppositional points of view in the classroom. But my experience, especially with our younger students, is that it's uh, they're, they're kind of more ironic. They they pick up bits and pieces here and there and are mm -hmm. assembling something out of right. them. Le less kind of adversarial approach to learning. Yeah, I was hmm. hammering away at this the other day and talking about evangelicals and liberals as if they're in different camps. And I increasingly have people saying, "Why are we assuming these are different things?" Mm -hmm. So you got to be careful with that because we can kind of freeze yeah. our worldview like in the place it was when we were in our 20s. Right. Mm -hmm. The world has changed a lot since I was in my 20s. Um, and I, I note similar flexibilities yes. that weren't present a few decades ago. And you've talked a lot personally about a kind of ministry that you have of blurring boundaries. I love smudging the lines. Um, <laughs> and I just think, you know, part of it comes from preaching because you don't want them to be able to guess where you're going to come from. Um, and so uh, if you just come from the same direction every time, they start to predict it, and, and then everybody's bored by it, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so I think sort of anticipating where someone thinks you're going to come from and then surprising them. So Aristotle has this thing where he says, a good story is one where you don't know how it's going to turn out, mm -hmm. and then it ends, and you say, well, it had to end that way. <laughs> so you want both things. You want to keep people surprised, not knowing where it's going, but then satisfied at the end, like, oh, that's, that's where we were going all along, mm -hmm. right? So it's actually quite a lot, I think, like the Christian Bible. <laughs> wow, we, we didn't know where that was going, but we think that was the right place for it to land, looking back. Um, so you want to kind of hold both things loosely, but I think they're right. You guys must find this with VST in general. Mm -hmm. So it's not just like where people would place you. Okay, so there's Jason or there's Richard, and where am I going to slot them in terms of evangelical mainline or right or left or whatever, and then you realize, oh, it doesn't work that way. VST must face that in general as well, right? Like, where where do they where does VST fit? Is it this kind of place or that kind? Yeah, of we place sometimes there? talk about ourselves as broadband Christianity, yeah. right? That um, and, and our growth area is, of course, in the three denominations we serve. But there's this whole other group. Uh, you've noticed yeah. that, Jason? Yeah, I am uh, uh, pleased to notice that. Um, so I, I sometimes call that group uh, merely Christian. So it's a hat mm. tip to C.S. Lewis. Um, but it's also true that in our three historic denominations, students are coming from places they wouldn't have been expected to come from a short time ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think what it means to be genuinely liberal is to be open to that and changed by it um, uh, and to become a new people together. Mm -hmm. the, uh, you, you mentioned Willie Jennings earlier in, and talking about um, you know, the, a theological institution not being the church. I mean, like uh, a church, I right. should say. Uh, you mentioned in, in some of your biographical material that I saw on, on the VST website, um, I think it was asking what are the challenges or what do you see, and, and your response was along the lines of the church having to take back more of its theological uh, training uh, from the academy because the academy has kind of, I think, 
word there was like ruined it or whatever. Um, mm. What does it mean for like the interplay of VST and the church? Mm-hmm. And what is the hopeful kind of side of this, like the church taking some of this back? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I worry that that hearing my own language there sounds well, too, I, yeah. too belligerent. But um, <laughs> uh, I do think um, we've spent maybe 100, 125 years saying we're going to have these seminaries and they're going to teach future ministers. We'll ship people off. Right. Yeah. And we've got to deconstruct their fundamentalism and then rebuild mm. a kind of certain liberal kind of faith and all. 125 years is like nothing in church time. So we've done that, and it may not have a long future. What will have a future is the church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we're going to have leaders in the church, it seems. Um, Preferably, to read the New Testament, um, the leaders will be unlikely, will be not the ones we would have chosen, and um, will be marked by a certain kind of weakness. They'll have the limp from wrestling with the angel, right? Um, So uh, universities are really good at certain things, but they're a narrow set of tasks. The church is trying to make a whole new humanity. Um, That's a broad set of tasks. And so our broadband faith, I think, Richard, I think you're right, is dedicated partly to saying, because the church is broadband, the church doesn't get to say, we don't do that, or we don't care about that, or we're we're not interested in those kind of people. But the university can say that all day long. Um, So in a way, I, I think... Part of what Richard and I are up to and others on our faculty is, is trying to re-evangelize our own seminaries in the sense that, uh, hey, the task is about Jesus and the strange people he's forming. Um, we're not going to be a congregation for you, as I said, but we want to give you a vision for the kinds of congregations you'll serve that will be life-giving for you and for them and for your neighbors and uh, your enemies. Well, Jason, thank you so much for, for being with us today. This was uh, enlightening, and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. We could go on for another hour, I think, quite easily. I want to say thanks to Todd uh, Weave, uh, who's co-hosted this uh, interview with me, and also to Allison Williams, who is uh, producing our program today. And uh, thanks be to God, she's also a, a VST student. Bruderholtz is a production of the Vancouver School of Theology. For more information about VST, visit vst.edu. Thanks for listening to Brutalize.